0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen.
1: If we're entering into a relationship with Jesus, I think the ability to see Him and to hear Him, to feel what He felt, to put on mind, as Paul says, but also to enter into his heart is foundational. It's also beautiful. It's also like having a relationship with a woman or a man that you love. And I would suggest that as opposed to off-putting or fearful, that it's a great gift and a great joy.
0: Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to Patreon.com/NotSeenRadio. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com/NotSeenRadio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Father Bill Kane. He's a Peabody and Writers Guild Award-winning screenwriter. His work for television includes the ABC TV series Nothing Sacred, also Thicker Than Blood, which received a Writers Guild nomination. He's also the author of the Christopher Award-winning Clover, Sounder, which was an NAACP Image Award winning nominee for Best Picture, and Night John, which received a citation for excellence from the National Society of Film Critics and was named by the New Yorker as the Best American Film of 1996. He's written for Netflix's House of Cards and Bloodline and is currently completing pilots for Paramount and the FX Network. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Diary of Jesus Christ. Father Bill Kane, welcome to Things Not Seen.
1: Thank you, thank you for having me.
0: So about 25 years ago, I was not yet fully committed to being a Christian, and I happened upon a theater piece by a man named Kurt Cloninger, and the name of this theater piece was Witnesses. And in this piece, it takes about an hour, Cloninger works through different characters around Jesus Christ, telling Christ's story from the way in which each of these characters in these monologues interacted with him. It really touched me. It really gave me a shape of who Jesus was in a way that was different from the context that I was living in at the time, which was the buckle of the Bible belt down in central Georgia. And when I was reading your diary of Jesus Christ, you are doing a similar sort of thing, except instead of giving us the characters around Jesus, you are in some ways— putting the pen in Jesus's hand himself and letting Jesus tell the stories of these experiences that maybe we know well from his eyes and from his heart. I got to say, first of all, this book really knocked my socks off, and I'm I'm excited to talk to you about it. But as a way of getting into this, I, I would like for you, if you could, to talk to my readers about what it was like to try and inhabit the person of Jesus Christ writing these stories from that perspective.
1: It sounds very grand when you describe it. <laughs> it felt very normal. I mean, we're all trying to find a way into the heart of the mystery, and Jesus is the heart of the mystery. I'm a Jesuit priest, and part of Jesuit prayer is what you described that play as doing entering into scenes that we know so well in the gospel. And what we are asked to do is to sit in a corner or become a minor character and observe what happens and allow our affections to rise. So after many decades of doing that, I began to gradually find myself more and more inhabiting the stories from the point of view of Jesus. And that became my prayer. But from that, it also began to become my preaching. One Ascension Thursday, my homily was the last story, the last entry that's in the diary in the book, which is Jesus finding it really hard To say goodbye to these people that he's known for 33 years, and the ascension breaks his heart. And people were extremely responsive to that. So I, I continued in that vein. So it was prayer turned to preaching.
0: Thank you for telling us a little bit about the process by which this book came about. And maybe let's take a step back. You mentioned that you were a Jesuit and that in Jesuit prayer, people are invited to imagine themselves as minor characters in the stories of Jesus Christ. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that, because some of my listeners may not be familiar with this particular style of prayer. They may never have been invited to pray in this way. Could you tell us a little bit about how that works?
1: Sure. It's... The surface of it is pretty simple. It's in the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius Loyola, and it gives you very specific passages. It begins with the nativity, and it says, be with them, watch them, see what happens. And the exercises, Ignatian prayer is to move the heart, to move the heart to tears and to move the heart to joy. And this is a kind of prayer that's just built for me because I'm a writer and an artist. So that's the given of the kind of prayer beyond that many years ago. Have you ever read Shaw's St. Joan?
0: I haven't. I've seen the the film from many decades ago, The Passion of Joan of Arc, but I've never read that piece.
1: Well, Shaw, in in the first scene of St. Joan, Joan's just a country girl at the time. Nothing has happened yet, and she needs a horse. So she goes to a squire and fights her way in to see him and says, I need a horse. And she says, why? And she says, well, God says I need a horse. (laughs) And he says, what do you mean, God says? And she says, I really can't tell you about the voices that I'm hearing. And the squire says to her, Joan, those are just the voices of your imagination. All that is your imagination. And Joan's answer is, of course, how else do you expect God to speak to me? And when I read that passage many years ago, it knocked me over and it gave me a way to approach Scripture, to to approach spiritual life through the imagination. And that's what Ignatius does as well.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Father Bill Kane. He is a Jesuit priest, and he is also an award-winning writer and screenwriter. We're talking today about his recent book, The Diary of Jesus Christ, which has been published by Orbis Press. So, You're telling us about this process that St. Ignatius Loyola showed to people in the spiritual exercises of entering into these stories from the Gospels in an imaginative way. And we're not talking about some kind of abstract or cold removal from the stories, but you mentioned an invitation to have emotions, an invitation to weep even, or to get caught up in the story. And I found myself while I was reading your book very much caught up, very emotional, and at times moved to tears, and I'm sure that we'll have a chance to talk about some of those stories. But I think for some people listening to this, it might be very alien to hear this invitation to have raw emotions about the gospel stories. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. How, For someone who's never heard about this before, who's never been exposed to this idea that they could have that kind of fresh, raw emotion about these stories, what is that like? And how do they begin to get over the fear that might accompany, for some of us, the invitation to do that?
1: why why would you be fearful of that david
0: well that's a good question to ask me i'm not saying that i myself am, am necessarily fearful of it but i think especially well as a man raised in america we are oftentimes told that we are not to have that kind of raw touch with our emotions. Men are not supposed to cry. Men are not supposed to really wear their emotions on their sleeve or even talk about their emotions at all. And so to think about Ignatius Loyola, for example, who was a soldier before he became uh, a person who was devoted to to God, he also was in this very kind of macho, masculine way. He had to learn how to be in touch with those emotions. And I, I guess I'm wondering about that journey.
1: Well, I, I would call into question I'm also a man who was raised in this country, in New York City, but I would call into question some of the vocabulary that's getting used, like raw emotion and wear your heart on your sleeve. I wonder if those, if that language conditions the experience in a less available way than it might be. I mean, no matter what we do, in some form or another, we're coming from the heart. We're moving towards what attracts us. We're moving towards what we need. We're moving towards what's beautiful. Above all, we're moving towards what we love. And if we're entering into a relationship with Jesus, I think the ability to see him and to hear him, to feel what he felt, to put on mind, as Paul says, but also to enter into his heart is foundational it's also beautiful. It's also like having a relationship with a woman or a man that you love. And I would suggest that as opposed to off-putting or fearful, that it's a great gift and a great joy.
0: What strikes me about that is, first of all, I, I appreciate very much the gentle correction you've given to my language. I'm also aware that as you were writing This Jesus as a character in this book, The Diary of Jesus Christ. I'm aware also that you sometimes wrote this Jesus as not quite knowing what he was getting himself into, not quite entering into a situation, knowing the way to go, and sometimes falling short of the real depths of love that we're talking about for some of the reasons that I've named. I'm thinking in particular about a point in the book where he is working with Mary Magdalene over the list of who's going to be in the inner circle of disciples. And I was very moved by that story because at one point Mary looks up and realizes she's not on the list, and there's a moment of disconnection and even anger, and Jesus realized he never thought to ask her. And and so I guess— when I'm talking about these words like raw emotion or those sorts of things, I'm hearing that partly in the way that I imagine that you were writing Jesus at that time as one who was in some ways conditioned by and in some ways trapped by the limited sight of his time. Now, those are my words, not yours. And if I've mischaracterized this, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I welcome the correction, but I wonder what you think as I begin to make those connections.
1: No, I don't. First of all, I apologize to you if. If it seems that I'm correcting your speech in this conversation, I would hope we'd be building something together besides getting to know one another. But in the story that you're talking about, yeah, Jesus and Mary spend time trying to figure out which of the apostles, which of the followers should become the inner circle. And Mary says, it looks like a pretty good list. There are only two, I think that are troublesome and they are Peter and Judas. And so you have to keep your eyes on them. But then as the list is called the next day, As I was reading over the gospel text, it says, he called to him the ones he wanted. And I think that must have been crushing for anyone who wasn't called. So that was the genesis of the story. And then that's combined with the position of many of the women that I know in the church who feel called right to the center of religious life, of priesthood, of the work of the church. And yet, are somehow excluded. They're made a a slightly less inner circle than the absolute inner circle. So that's where the story came from. It was powerful to preach because that one was preached largely to an audience of women.
0: If I may ask, how was it received and what sort of feedback, if any, did you get after you preached it?
1: Well, as I say, these were all preached, most of them were preached at 745 in the morning at a very small mass at Xavier Parish in New York City. And it's a wonderful group of people. And what I began to realize as I was doing them was whether they were good or bad, whether I was succeeding artistically, whether I had a full story that had a certain roundness to it, or if I just had just the hope of a story, they responded in the same way. Because what the stories were doing were opening the space to invite people to feel what it what inside Christ might be. Now, what I'm doing and what I'm saying is not at all definitive, but it was inviting people to find their own way into the mystery of Christ. And they were always generous and forgiving and responsive.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Bill Kane. He's a Peabody and Writers Guild award-winning screenwriter and American playwright. He wrestles with the great themes of faith, he is the creator of the TV show Nothing Sacred, and today we're talking about his recent book, The Diary of Jesus Christ. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying this conversation, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these kinds of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Father Bill Kane. He's a Jesuit and an American playwright. His work wrestles with the great themes of faith, and he's a Peabody Award-winning screenwriter and the creator of the TV show, Nothing Sacred. He's speaking to us from Brooklyn, New York, and we're talking about his recent book, The Diary of Jesus Christ. Before the break, we were talking about one of the characters in the book, The Diary of Jesus Christ, Mary Magdalene, and what struck me about this character and many of the characters that we encounter here in your book, The Diary of Jesus Christ, they may have gotten a couple of lines here and there in the Gospels, but when I read them in your work, they are completely realized, fleshed-out characters with motivations and frustrations, and— I want to know a little bit about your process. I I recognize that you do this for a living. You help to take ideas and turn them into characters that become parts of plays and parts of films. But for listeners who may be unfamiliar with how that process works, can you walk us through a little bit about what it's like to take a couple of lines of indication about a motivation or an action on the part of a character and to flesh it out into a more realized psychology and character for us on the page?
1: Do you want to pick a character? Well, let's start with Mary Magdalene. All right. Well, she's a complicated one, right? Because... Mary in the Gospels is complicated because we don't know exactly who she is, and she gets conflated with several different Marys. I have a story that's not in the book, which is called Too Many Marys, because there are Marys all over the place in the Gospel. But with her, she has an intimate relationship of some sort with Jesus, and Kazan made that, in fantasy, a sexual relationship. In general, she's conflated with a woman of the streets. So the more I thought about her, For a while, she was a midwife in my imagining to maintain the sexual connection. I did a lot of reading about her. I listened to some lectures, some feminist lectures about her. And bit by bit, she begins to take shape. And she eventually became a healer, as you know from the book. And she's considered unclean because that, because she'll accept anyone and work on their healing. And if she can't heal them, she can console them. And then she begins to find voice. And as you said, the voice that she found in one of the first pieces for her was her hurt as she hears the list of apostles' names being called and she's not on it. And that begins to draw her into wondering, who exactly have I given my life to? Who is Jesus to me? And that begins to define her humanity. Then as she continues to turn up week after week in the gospel, and you begin to investigate her role in the resurrection, you begin to get more deeply inside her utter belief in Jesus and her utter fidelity and her willingness to leap into the most frightening places, and she emerges. One thing you said, if I may say, and again, please don't think I'm taking issue with you, but the way you described it was taking ideas and emerging with personality. That's not the way my work works. I get hit with staggering feeling. And then try to work my way out of that. So all of my writing, uh, uh, all of the writing I do of screenplays or plays or this, comes from an intuition. And the intuition is coupled with feeling. And then I have to sit and listen to what the information within the feeling is. So the feeling comes first, and then the information follows.
0: When you're in that moment of being hit full force by this imagery and these emotions, does another part of your brain start to kick in and say, I see this more as a screenplay? Or do you say, I see this more as something to be written on the page and experienced by a reader? Are you at the point where at the same time that you're seeing or feeling these images, you're processing it at that structural level? Or does the structuring come later, and you're just trying to get down the emotional heft of what you're experiencing?
1: I say the latter. I think the emotional heft in trying to get it external to myself so I can see it. Like in Harry Potter, there's a wonderful thing called the sieve, where you can take a thought and put it in a bas- basin and get a look at it. And I'd say the first stage of writing is for me to try to get the feeling into the basin, onto pencil and paper, so I can begin to see it. And then that begins to define the shape. But all of these were for a Thursday or a Friday morning mass. So there was a production line to it. Every week, my prayer was centered on the gospel for the following mass that would be done. So there was always a shape to these.
0: And what we encounter here in your book, The Diary of Jesus Christ, when we're reading it on the page, how close is that to the sermon that you preached? Or did you write it in a kind of sermon form, and I'm not even sure what I mean by that, and then translate it into a different kind of form for the reader? Or are those two forms very similar?
1: Well, now, here we come to David. David, I looked you up, and you've got all sorts of academic degrees. Is that true? You've got two masters and
0: a PhD? This is true. I appreciate (laughs) the attention. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Which is wonderful. But from my academic background, what my academic background in theology was always stripping away the imagination and asking, what is the meaning of this given word? Or what is the literary form we're dealing with? And for me, it just works in the opposite direction. It works from the impulse. and then the impulse finds the form. And the form for preaching, people usually get up and turn Jesus into a series of moral lessons or give stories illustrating Jesus. I'm kind of hungry to be with Jesus. And I I make no claims for the absolute nature of anything I write or think. But I think that's the motion. I think the motion is, at least in the exercises of Ignatius, to find yourself Jesus's companion, Jesus's fellow traveler. And that's the beginning and end of wisdom for me.
0: You mentioned my academic background, and it's interesting that my academic background and my faith have roughly paralleled one another. They began at about the same time. And so it's been interesting in this conversation, but also you've just caused me to go back and think about some of that journey and the ways in which I have been occasionally accused of being too emotional in my academic life and too academic when I need to be pastoral. <laughs> so I recognize the the polarities that you're pulling out here. So you mentioned a moment ago, Kanzanzakis and The Last Temptation of Christ, which was a book and then was turned into a movie by Martin Scorsese. And I I wonder if you could, when you see other portrayals like that, and that's a very stark one that caused a lot of controversy, it was a very foundational movie for me in thinking about my own kind of way of approaching Jesus Christ. It was a very human Jesus. But I wonder when you see other portrayals like that, do you find yourself drawn to them? Do you find yourself pulling back and, and wincing and going, oh, that's not quite it? Or how do you respond to other artistic portrayals of Jesus?
1: Well... Strangely enough, I don't have a very strong memory of Last Temptation, which I read when the movie came out and I saw the movie. I saw the movie first day, but what I mostly remember from that day is bomb-sniffing dogs. That's in the theater, trying to see if the theater would be blown up. But the one that hit me for the first time that said, oh, wow, there might be a person behind all of this, was a BBC television show for Play of the Week called son of man which i recommend to you it's on youtube you can find it it's by the famous television writer dennis potter and it's played by colin blakely and it begins with jesus rolling around in the desert going is it me is it me is it me is it me and ends with him on the cross going is it me is it me but in between He's a pugnacious, short, round kind of guy. And there's a lot of fight in him and a lot of humor, but a lot of bravery and a lot of compassion. And that was the first time I think I saw an image that was distinct from a biblical epic or iconography where I said, oh, the guy's human. And that opened a door for me.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and today we're speaking with Father Bill Kane. He's a Jesuit and an American playwright. His work wrestles with the great themes of our faith. He received a Peabody Award, and he is also a screenwriter and the creator of the TV show Nothing Sacred. We're talking today about his recent book, The Diary of Jesus Christ. Can I ask you a question? You absolutely may.
1: Were you put off by the idea of a diary of Jesus Christ?
0: I will say that when I first picked up the book, before I began to read it, I had a real smug sense, oh, I know what this is. This is going to be saccharine. This is going to be be tidy. It's going to be what I have often come to expect from sermons and homilies, which is we're going to tie up these loose ends with a bow, and we're going to make this very neat and tidy. It was so much not that. It it completely took me unawares. And as I began to get into it, as I got to like the second and the third reflection within it, I found myself very involved with the characters and very much emotionally tied up in it. There's one where you're talking about Mary and you weave the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord and casting down the mighty and sending the rich empty away. You show me a Mary that I've always wanted to see preached about, but I have not actually encountered oftentimes from the pulpit. I needed that Mary. I didn't realize that I needed that Mary. I didn't realize I needed this Mary Magdalene. I didn't realize I needed this Judas until you gave them to me and i'm so i'm i'm saying this now to listeners if you don't understand what i'm talking about you need to pick up this book the diary of jesus christ because it's incredibly powerful so that's my answer to you it's not at all what i expected it's very much what i needed
1: aren't you kind aren't you kind mary's a tough cookie in this book mary is a very again, everything is conditioned by one's family background. My father was a very gentle man. My mother was a very strong woman. And I think I've applied that to Joseph and to, to Mary. For me, the book kicks off. There's a story about Jesus when he's in his mid-teens and he goes for a long journey. And he ends up where the slaughter of the innocents took place. And he begins to discover what his birth story actually was. And for me, For me, that's the first story that the stories from the beginning are defining. But when he gets there, when he says, wow, this is what my birth cost. And this is what I wish to be to these women who lost their children in the slaughter, the slaughter from which I was spared. To me, that's where the book begins to bite in.
0: Well, and if I may, for readers, he enters this town. And he realizes that all these women, young and old, are paying an undue amount of attention to him. And at first he says, I really like this. I think I'll have to come back to this place. And then he said, he mentions casually to one of them, I was born here. And they ask him about when that happened. And he tells them and they say, that's not possible. And and for me, that that was one of the moments when the scales fell from my eyes. And I, I exactly as you say, I'm like, Oh my goodness. The only other time that I've seen this dealt with is in a book by Albert Camus called The Fall, where Jesus has to give accounting for the fact that so many innocent people died so that he could come into the world. But I really was moved by the way that you dealt with it here in your book, The Diary of Jesus Christ, because as you say, Jesus suddenly sees the real cost to this community, but he also sees how loving and kind these people have become to one another in the wake of that suffering. Now, again, those are my words, not yours. Perhaps you'd say it a different way, but when I'm making those connections, am I getting at what you were wanting to communicate in telling this story?
1: Yeah, you're perfect, David. So he comes in, and the girls are all looking at him because they don't see boys his age, and then when the mothers come— And they explain, it's impossible that you could have been born here because the children were slaughtered. And we went through this massive grief. And they take him to where he was born. And he's ashamed of the poverty of the place he was born in. And they say, no, you mustn't be ashamed. It was because it was so poor. They didn't look for you here. And then they say, can we touch you? Can we treat you now as if you were our son? Our sons would be taller or shorter or..." any number of things but may we treat you as your as our son. And when he goes home Joseph and Mary have never really spoken of this to him but they sit down and they talk and it begins to Joseph says to him what do you wish to be now from this? And he describes all that he would do for these women. I wish I were their son. I wish I could take care of them. I wish I could introduce them to you. And Joseph says, "Well, do that. Enter that world and live in that world." And for me that that becomes plausible. That becomes, yeah, I could see a young man being touched that way and being transformed by the experience.
0: One of the things that listeners may be gathering from our conversation is that this book does not shy away from the ugliness that human beings can visit on one another. So this book talks about the costs of empire. This book talks about great loss. This book talks about how religious persons and religious institutions will turn their back on the vulnerable. I'm thinking about the baby who is brought to the temple for naming, and suddenly the person, the priest who's supposed to name him, suddenly begins shouting out, who was it that sinned that the child is like this, this little lame baby? And the anger and the venom that comes up from that in the story. And a a lot of what you're doing when you're giving us these stories of Jesus is you're showing us how Jesus doesn't paint over the venom and paint over the hurt. But exactly as you just said, Jesus instead enters into that hurt and helps to unwork, to, to work it out from the inside out. And I, my words are failing me here, but it, it's beautiful to watch this Jesus at work in the pain of others and to really recognize that he's feeling pain himself. Jesus is not some cardboard cutout moving through and saying, bless you, my child, bless you, my child. This is a very human Jesus that we're seeing, but without sacrificing the divinity. And I'm I'm really struck by how well realized all these characters are. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what it was like to work in that realm of pain.
1: Well, we all live there, right? We all have a share in it. It's what creates empathy. It's what creates community. It's what brings us together. I don't know what to say beyond that. One thing I think that's interesting, there are a lot of miracles. And again, the book has these stories, so the book is a selection, really. But there are a lot of miracles. And one thing that happened over the course of writing was trying to think about, well, what happened to Jesus during a miracle? Was it magic? Did he wave a magic wand to heal and slowly a method of healing began to occur to me, which is he had to enter into the person's pain and feel it before he could correct it. And that becomes exhausting for him at times. But it also creates, as with the first miracle with the leper, the first person he cures, unaware that he can cure. He says, I want to. And the leper says, as in the gospel, I think you can. And he does. But to do that, part of it is creating a bond through the mutual shared pain they have.
0: And this surprises Jesus as much as it does anyone else, at least at first. And he, he we never really get him explaining the mechanism of it other than love.
1: Well, he goes a little bit further in terms of when he's when he, there are a couple times he talks about it and he's and again, who knows as these go on, who knows if I'll discover more. But In my imagination, he says, and john maybe it's John the Baptist who says it, he has this overwhelming desire, not just for his own good, but for the good of others, and that this life abundantly that Jesus has seems to flow out of him. Not always, because there are miracles that do not work. And that just distur- and that's in the gospel too. Sometimes he cannot heal, and that causes him pain as well. But it's the sympathy, the oneness that allows him to draw on his own health to supply health to somebody who needs it.
0: There's a beautiful moment in your book, The Diary of Jesus, where John the Baptist is in prison and Jesus goes to visit him, and Jesus offers to actually stay in his place and be killed in his place and let John go free. And it's a beautiful moment on several levels. One, because John gradually recognizes that Jesus is serious and is completely willing to do this extreme action to save John's life. But then there's an exchange, and I'm not going to quote it perfectly, but John basically says, I'm a person of violence. (laughs) you're a person of love and it's been my entire life's work to point to you i'm not the one that should go free you're the one that should go free now i wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that moment between john and jesus as you were imagining it and writing it
1: john the baptist asks are you the one cousin and modesty would not do at this point it was a mark of john's greatness that it was he who was imprisoned not me But this was not a moment to stand in his shadow that would serve neither him nor me. So I stepped out of the shadow and I told him in truth, the temple, it's no longer a building. It's here within me. The Ark of the Covenant within me. The tablets of the commandments there within me as well. The burning bush, the pillar of fire, all of them within me. Adam and Eve, I feel their astonished love for one another and all the love since, licit and forbidden, real and imagined. I feel a hunger for justice of the prophets as well. All all within me. I could see John filled with joy. Yes, that's it, Jesus says. And yet I do not feel special. I feel everyone can feel this if they let themselves become God as is God. And as you said, we desire, as God does, that they have life, and that abundantly. And you, John, You showed me this with your fasting and your honey. You split open a closed heaven and showed me God behind it. You held the sky open so that the spirit could descend. And when it did, you didn't grab for it. You let it fall on me. You opened the heavens for me. And God has claimed me. John, I would have said, I'm sorry not to have lived to have seen the promise fulfilled. But I have seen it now. And now you must go. So that's their relationship.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Father Bill Kane. He's a Jesuit and an American playwright. His work wrestles with the great themes of our faith. He's a Peabody Award-winning screenwriter, and he's the creator of the TV show Nothing Sacred. He's speaking to us from Brooklyn, New York, and we're talking about his recent book, The Diary of Jesus Christ. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries one-click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these kinds of interviews and conversations, all available for your listening pleasure for free. Our guest today is Father Bill Kane. He's a Jesuit and an American playwright. His work wrestles with the great themes of our faith. He's a Peabody Award-winning screenwriter. He's also the creator of the TV show Nothing Sacred. He's speaking to us from Brooklyn, New York, and we're talking about his recent book, The Diary of Jesus Christ. Well, I want to say that in addition to all the points where I found myself in tears or near tears or deeply moved by this book, I also found it to be wildly entertaining and funny, and in particular, the interactions between Jesus and some of the people around him. Jesus's interaction with his mother Mary, Jesus's interactions with some of the people that he heals there's moments where they're really calling him on his stuff and it's human of course and it's real it it reads in a real kind of way like it doesn't feel staged but also it's just funny and i'm wondering what it's like to be caught up in a moment like that as a writer when you're finding your character particularly our lord and savior doing something that's a little bit more comic and not necessarily so serious what's that like for you
1: it's very enjoyable for instance jesus preaching with his mother in the co- in the crowd <laughs> i think is a funny image because it's very hard to Im- at least when i was preaching and my mother was there it's very hard to impress your mother so my image is mary with her arms folded and her head tilted to one side with her not being terribly impressed with jesus's preaching or his preaching even in the gospels goes awry. Much of the time, if not most of the time, where he has to correct and explain and undo. And then there are characters who just turn up like Crazy Ruthie, who's a woman who's invented out of the parables. He tells a lot of parables about this old woman. So she's turned up and she she cuts Jesus down to size pretty regularly.
0: Well, and there's a, a one line I think that kind of sums up the source of some of the humor and absurdity and misconnections that we're talking about here. It's very late in the book. And Jesus, after he's resurrected, he basically says, Well, I was a carpenter talking to fishermen about agriculture. <laughs> and, and the kind of disconnect, and that's one of the lines that made me laugh out loud, where I realized suddenly, yeah, he's telling these stories to people for whom these stories may not connect at all. And we, we think about the Monty Python scene where he goes, Blessed are the peacemakers and at the back of the crowd, they hear, blessed are the cheesemakers. Well, perhaps he means all purveyors of dairy products. But what we see, as you just said, is that in the Gospels themselves, sometimes he's saying things and it just doesn't connect. Sometimes the miracles don't work. Sometimes the stories don't land.
1: Well, there's one story that's actually not in the book where in the Gospel of John, Jesus' Jesus's bread of life sermon goes way off the rails and people want nothing to do with him you know, everybody walks away and he says to his disciples, are you going to leave too? And they say, yeah, well, we don't have any other place to go, which is not exactly a resounding uh, endorsement. But a Roman soldier who heard the speech comes up and is able to talk to him. But it's a play back and forth. It's a bunch of people on the road with all the details of their life.
0: Well, in this back and forth that you're talking about, several of these characters, like you mentioned, the Roman soldier, there's a Roman soldier who shows up at several points in your book, The Diary of Jesus Christ, and in weaving together some of these stories, some of them are imaginative, they're not reflected in the Gospels, some of them are some of them are picking up on the Gospel story, but there's this one point where the centurion, and we I've heard so many homilies on the centurion and the great faith of the centurion, and for those that are Catholic, when we hear these phrases, praises in Mass, "'Lord, I'm not worthy to enter under your roof, but only say the word, and my soul shall be healed.'" Those are the centurion's words. But you give us this moment where Jesus comes into contact with the centurion later and says, "'Hey, you remember me? I healed your servant. You're not going to kill me, right?' And the centurion looks him straight in the eye and says, "'If I was ordered to do it, I would strike you down right here, right now. Almost how dare you even ask me that?' And then the centurion pulls him aside and offers him his sword and says, listen, if they're coming after you, die a noble death, a quick death, and fall on this sword to pierce your heart. None of that latter part is in the gospel stories that we have. And yet this made the centurion come so alive for me. And the centurion is committed to him, but also committed to his oaths and to his public sort of face. and all. I saw the struggle of the centurion in that. And those moments like that happen again and again in this book, The Diary of Jesus Christ. Christ
1: Thank you for reading it so carefully i 'm very appreciative
0: as you 're doing this I, I want to come back now to a scene in the book that you talked about just a moment ago. Mary is on the edge of the crowd, hearing Jesus preaching these parables. And he's preaching the parable about the rich man and Lazarus. And as a professor, this is a story that I've come to again and again. And I will tell you that as a professor and as a person who has read the Gospels, my heart has been hardened over the years against the rich man. How dare the rich man, even when he is in the afterlife, still think of Lazarus as his poor servant to come and cool his tongue. And your book completely undid that for me. So for listeners, so Jesus preaches this. Mary, his mother, is on the side of the crowd with her head tilted and her arms folded. And then then she says, I know who you were talking about in that parable, even though you didn't name the names. And then she brings the human equivalent of Lazarus and the human equivalent of the rich man to her home and has Jesus sit and they all have dinner together. And in the wake of that, what you made me see is the compassion of Lazarus for the rich man, that Lazarus would have gone and would have comforted him because the poor beggar knows what it's like to suffer. This was one of the moments where I found myself weeping because I realized, oh my God, I have been reading this story without love. I'm a sounding brass. I'm a tinkling cymbal. I am not, <laughs> I'm not finding the love in this story. You helped to show me the love in this story. You helped to unharden my heart. So I want to say thank you. But I also just, I, I, I want to ask about that. As I'm saying this to you, how does it feel to hear somebody say that you've undone their reading and that they're reading it now in a new way?
1: I feel that's what we do for each other all the time were each other's teachers. I thank you for appreciating the story. I like that one because the beggar at the gate is more a father to the family than the rich man is. And he has to teach the rich man how to care for his family. But the thing I like very much is that at the end, Mary undoes Jesus because Jesus has said, there's a great gulf between these people and never never will there be any connection between the two of them. And Mary says, I don't know once tenderness begins, it never ends, I think that poor man would have found a way. He would have snuck behind God and gotten water to that thirsty man. And if I taught you differently, Jesus, Joshua, if I taught you differently, I'm very sorry. And I like her in that. I like her at that moment.
0: That picks up a theme that comes early in the book and kind of rings throughout the book. And it's a theme that I find in the line where you say, some will see the coming of the Messiah as a terrible interruption of their religious services. There are some that are so committed to the gulf between us that they can't see the love that demands that we sneak behind the barriers and actually feed and care for one another. And that rings out again and again in this book. I hope If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Father Bill Kane. He's a Jesuit and an American playwright. His work wrestles with the great themes of our faith. He's a Peabody Award-winning screenwriter and the creator of the TV show Nothing Sacred. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Diary of Jesus Christ. Picking up on that idea that love sneaks behind the barriers, even behind the barriers that we think God has erected and creates new compassion and new healing, I really want to spend a few minutes talking about how Judas factors into your book, The Diary of Jesus Christ. We mentioned earlier in the conversation the work by Kanzanzakis and the the movie by Martin Scorsese, The Last Temptation of Christ. Judas is a very realized character there, and we begin to understand why Judas betrays Jesus in that narrative— I was deeply moved and troubled and touched and made to think again and again about the way that you're portraying Judas here in the diary of Jesus Christ, because Judas is a man who has been abused, and Judas is a man who has been abused by those that were supposed to be loving of him. And so you present him as a victim, an adult victim of childhood and I'm going I'm to say childhood sexual abuse, but it's never exactly explicit in the book, but that seems to be the case. I'm wondering, as you're writing this character of Jesus, if you had in the back of your mind some of the victims of the clerical abuse scandal in the Catholic Church or others who have been abused in these kind of intimate ways, how you were thinking about those realities as you were writing this fictional character.
1: Well, very much. But again, as I said earlier, I don't move from thought very much. Thought comes later. Jesus says, What father, if you asked him for an egg, would give you a viper? And the character who became Judas said, How dare you say that? There are such fathers. And there are. I've done a fair amount of teaching in my life in tough neighborhoods, and there are such fathers. And that became the seed of who Judas became. So when that happens, when love becomes unreliable, one has to test love. And that becomes, for Judas, what he does in his betrayal. And Jesus realizes it. He, Judas is saying with his kiss, are you able to love me? If what happened to me, if the abuse that happened to me happened to you, would you still be capable of love? He isn't even thinking at the time, could you love me? Could you love? And Jesus pushes through it, although it's not easy for him. After the resurrection, there's a scene between the two of them where he explains that only after having gone through the crucifixion can he understands what Judas has been through in his own abuse. And consequently, he now can love him totally, which is terribly painful for Judas. But like the story with Mary... Judas says, will you visit me in hell? And Jesus says to him, will you visit me in heaven? And Judas says, is that possible? And he goes, yes, the door is always open. Make a wiser choice now than you did the last time. And then Judas then helps Jesus to understand Peter's betrayal. Um, But Judas has a long journey, and we all have our own version of what that might be. But that turned out to be mine.
0: There's a moment there as well in that interaction between Judas and Jesus, where Jesus has understood now what it is to be betrayed and abused in an intimate way, but also now Judas understands what it is to have the power of the abuser and to be able to watch his choices cause another person pain and pain to the level of death and Torture and betrayal. And so, this is part of what Judas is having to wrestle with as well that there really is a genuine love and friendship and and affection that is not sullied by what has gone between them. And it's that love. And I think about this in light of another line that comes out from the book God isn't done loving us yet. Jesus isn't done loving Judas yet. And Judas has to find his peace with that. And it's not easy. It's not easy. And I I think of this as a person who grew up in a, a household with some violence and some trauma, realizing that in the midst of that, my parents loved me as best they could. This is the terrible reality is that we're not always seeing people who, even though they've been created in love, the love that they have is distorted. The love that they have is broken in some ways by the world. And what I'm watching in your book, The Diary of Jesus Christ, is Jesus entering into that brokenness and healing it from the inside out, almost from the root of it. And it's very powerful, that moment where Judas now has to understand, if I, if I may, in order to enter heaven, he has to account for himself that he has chosen to be an abuser and to choose better next time, I think, is a very powerful way to put that.
1: Thank you. I think there's some truth in the Judas character, and I'm glad you feel some of that.
0: I felt tremendous truth in the Judas character. And again, what I want to make sure that listeners are getting from this conversation is how— much this book is taking the stories that you know well, or maybe you think that you know well, and I'm saying this now to the listeners, and it's turning them sometimes almost on their heads or inside out so that you're seeing them in a wholly new way. And I'm going to use wholly now in two ways, both wholly in terms of the whole, but also holy, H-O-L-Y. Like, I think that there's a holiness here, even though there's a point in the book where Jesus says, listen, if that's the God that you're worshiping, rip the book up. (laughs) <laughs> and if you're worshiping a, a God that wants to hurt children, if you're worshiping a God of violence, rip those pages out of your scriptures. I think some listeners, some readers might come to that and be like, what, this is a priest saying this? How can a priest say this about the holy book? And I'm, I'm wondering, I think I know the answer, but I want to make sure my listeners know the answer. You're almost saying throw the book over unless it teaches you to love. When I say it that way, I'm, have I got it right?
1: Well, I, uh, did you grow up in a fundamentalist family?
0: I actually grew up in a in a family that was non believers in a very fundamentalist context. So I grew up in an atheist household in South Georgia, in the midst of the Bible Belt.
1: Let's do a show just talking about that. <laughs> but for me, I think the Bible is largely is progressive. That as you sit and read it from the beginning to the end, counting not the Hebrew scriptures with the Christian scriptures, there's a growing consciousness. And you begin in myth, then you move to domination of a land, a very bloody warrior God, exile where compassion is learned, the prophets where compassion deepens, and you move to Jesus. But there are growing awarenesses all the way through, and I think we're meant to continue to grow with and past Jesus in our understanding. So some of the early sections, the bloody slaughters that are sanctioned by God, I don't think... It's really interesting to me, Jesus never refers back to coming out of Egypt. He never talks about plagues being visited on people or the death of the firstborn. He never goes there. The evangelists do occasionally, but he never does. He's into a different place. And I think we're called to that deeper sacrificial love that is the center of him. And the center of us, really, if we allow it to be.
0: Well, that leads me to then want to ask you the question, and sometimes as I'm one of the opportunities that I have to teach the New Testament, I will sometimes ask my students this just as a very sort of bold question. If you were to put into one sentence the definition of what the gospel is, what's the gospel?
1: Actually, I tried to do that in the book, if you can give me just one second, because the scribe who says you know, you're not far from the kingdom of God, gets it down to three things. But he says, justice finally is mercy, and mercy finally is what justice is. What's human is divine, and there is a chosen people, and it's all of us. I think those three things together summarize the gospel pretty quickly.
0: And in the context of the book, that makes sense. I'm aware that sometimes we are participating in a church, and I'm using that both in terms of the institutional church, the Catholic church, but also the kind of social church as a force in our culture that wants to give us a different gospel, that wants to tell us that God loves us for our purity and for those that we exclude, and that God really loves us when we follow all the rules. And I wonder, as a way of speaking to listeners that may be very much interested in worshiping that kind of God— how would you speak to that kind of expectation that that's what God wants from us?
1: Well, I, in the book, Jesus wanted that too. Jesus goes away to a monastery when he's in his 20s. And he goes to Qumran and he tries to be as clean as he possibly can. Ritual washings and bleached white garments and all of that. But finally, it doesn't take him to God. He says it might take some people there, but it didn't take him there. And so he finds his home with sinners, and he finds his home with the imperfect and the impure. And that's where he, in his journey, seems to have found the presence of the holy.
0: It strikes me from what I know of other Jesuits that I've talked to that in many ways this is a very Jesuit Jesus that we're seeing. The Jesuits that I know speak this kind of language. I don't necessarily want someone to pretty themselves up to come to worship. I want to try and find a way to bring worship to them, to try and find a way to meet them where they are. And to what extent— Am I getting that right, that this is a a kind of Jesus that is influenced by those kind of Jesuit values? Or would you say that these are greater than the Jesuit values, and that in fact, if I'm seeing the Jesuits working this way, that they're just reflecting the proper Jesus? Like where, I guess I'm wondering where the emphasis is for you.
1: Well, I think the proper Jesus is enormous and has endless faces. But for the specific Jesuit part, We're asked, we are Jesuits, which is to say, belonging to Jesus. So we're asked to be close to Jesus. So the book, I think, reflects that. And our prayer is to do that. But beyond that, our charism is to find God in all things. That's what we are asked to do. Not to find God just in church or just in the monastery or the cloister, but to go into the world and find the presence of God. That's the job. And it's a very joyful job. And it means we end up as psychiatrists and social workers and artists and teachers and all that kind of stuff. But all of that is just a way of trying to look in every corner to find the presence of God. So our God is big and multifaceted and to be found on street corners as well as in churches. And that's that's us looking for God in all things.
0: I realize that these reflections that became The Diary of Jesus Christ, this book, they started out as homilies at 7.45 in the morning. And so I know who the first audience was for these reflections. But I wonder, now that they've become a book, who are you hoping that this book reaches?
1: I don't know. I've never done a book before. I'm delighted that it had this effect on you because as I deliver them to people, they're small dramatic pieces, but I'm glad that just on the page, it spoke to you. I write drama and I write film and I write television. So the book is new to me. So you can probably answer that better than I can. You seem to have been a prime audience.
0: Well, I will say that I would find that this book would work on two levels. One, I see this book working for someone like me who has spent time with these stories, thinks they know what the stories mean, and needs pardon me, a good shaking up <laughs> in in the ossification of my expectations about who Jesus is. And that really was, it hit me like a thunderbolt, some of these stories. And so I'm one audience that I hope received this book. But I'll say another audience, I think someone who has never encountered Jesus before. So when I was first starting my journey into faith, I encountered The Last Temptation of Christ, that, that film that we've mentioned a couple times. And the Jesus that was portrayed there, even though a lot of people who were, deeply religious hated that Jesus, I found that Jesus to be very welcoming and very reassuring and that the struggles of that Jesus made me feel more at home. I feel like your book would also work for people who are beginning their faith journey or just dipping their toe into even thinking about being faithful at all. The Jesus that they encounter here is going to be very different, I think, than the one that oftentimes they get from our culture or from some of our religious institutions. And so I think that audience is one that I hope really gets this book as well.
1: I hope so. I also would hope that somebody who just wants the story of an adventure— a human adventure into the mystery of who we are might like it as well. I wish you read this book when you were an atheist or coming from that moment just to experience the journey of Jesus.
0: Well, Father Bill Kane, I have been so pleased to have a chance to talk to you about this book. It's a book that I'm going to return to. It's a book I'm going to share with my students. This book, The Diary of Jesus Christ, as I've said several times throughout this conversation, completely rearranged some of the ways that I thought about these stories. I'm so grateful that you took the time to preach about this, to imagine about this, to write about this, but especially glad that you took the time today to talk about it with me and my listeners.
1: I'm very, very grateful, David. Wonderful to meet you.
0: We've been speaking today with Father Bill Kane. He's a Jesuit and an American playwright. His work wrestles with the great themes of our faith. He's a Peabody Award-winning screenwriter and the creator of the TV show Nothing Sacred. He spoke to us from Brooklyn, New York. We've been talking today about his recent book, his first book, The Diary of Jesus Christ. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC.